Our gospel lesson is found in Matthew chapter 18, reading verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. All right, I went swimming yesterday and have water in my ears that I've been unable to clog, but even today, I know that that was weak. I know it's a frightening parable, but this is the word of the Lord. There we go. Let's pray. And Father, as we gather before your word, we do give thanks. You've given us your truth to lead us and guide us into your ways. We confess that we need your help, especially when it comes to the topic of forgiveness. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In Jesus' prayer, the Lord's Prayer, he teaches us to ask, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our debts, as we forgive those who have trespassed against us, or as we forgive those who are indebted to us. And it is at this point in the prayer that any notion of Christianity as a consumerist or comfortable religion is eviscerated. It's destroyed. The implication is clear. God forgives us, and he forgives us in order to transform us, that we can't simply come to God through Jesus and get something, that something is also going to happen to us. And in our own moralistic culture, where we thrive on guilt and shame, there could be nothing more difficult Nothing more challenging 
and nothing more powerful than to be taught all over again what it means to pray to forgive others. It's April 7th, 1994, that chaos descended on the small African nation of Rwanda. Immaculate Ilibagiza was a university student in Kigali. She was home on leave when the reports began to come over the radio that there were savage murders taking place in the streets, that Hutus were murdering Tutsis, neighbor-on-neighbor violence. Racial tensions were not new to Rwanda. They had flared before, but certainly this The reports on the radio, certainly that was not happening. But the reports only grew worse. Militia groups armed with two things, grenades and machetes, were roaming the streets of Rwanda. And they were hacking Tutsis and Hutu sympathizers to death. Immaculate was separated from her family. Her father sent her away. And a local Hutu pastor sheltered her, along with seven other Rwandan women, in a very small hidden room. The door to the room was obscured by a wardrobe. They were there for three months. Militiamen heard that the pastor was sheltering Tutsi women and came and searched the house multiple times. On one fretful evening, A militiaman went through the room, running his machete along the wall, calling her name Immaculate, boasting that he would kill her, along with all the other cockroaches, the favorite term that was used to demean the Tootsies. Somehow, the room was not discovered. Immaculate was emancipated from the room, and she was rescued But she learned that her entire family, with the exception of one brother who had been out of the country, was killed in the 91-day reign of terror. Order was eventually restored, and the militia were imprisoned for their crimes. And several years later, Immaculate was given the opportunity to confront the man who had murdered her mother and her sister. He was unable to face his accuser, but there in front of her was the same voice that she had heard in the room calling her name. The man's name was Felician. He was there, and he couldn't look at her. He could only sob. The warden ordered him to stand and to confess his crimes, but he couldn't do it. He finally looked Immaculate in the eye. His daughter had actually been childhood friends with her. Immaculate took his hands, the very hands that had hacked her mother and her sister, and she said these simple words, I forgive you. The prisoner was escorted out, and the warden turned to Immaculate, and you can imagine the tension of the moment. And he says, what was that about? I brought you here to shame him. I brought you here to spit on him. That man killed your family. But you forgave him. Why did you do that? And friends, that is the question 
Why did she do that? Why does Jesus on his cross do that? When he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. C.S. Lewis once quipped, we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it. (laughs) And that's the truth, isn't it? It's a beautiful notion, but it comes at a high price. And so how does it work? In Matthew 18, Jesus teaches us two things about the practice of forgiveness. The forgiveness that he's taught in his prayer, he now expands on in his teaching. And he addresses these two things, the extent of the forgiveness that we are to offer, and also the motivation for that forgiveness. And so let's look at both of those things. First, the extent of our forgiveness. Peter comes to Jesus and somewhat piously asks the question, how many times should I forgive my offending brother? Peter doesn't hesitate to wait for an answer. He even gives a recommendation, is seven times good? Now, that was a laudable answer, really, because the rabbis only required three, and so Peter was willing to up the ante to seven. But then Jesus responds in verse 22, and he says this, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some translations will say 77 times. Others will say 70 times seven. It's actually a difficult phrase to render, but the point is clear because Jesus is actually giving a very deft allusion to the fourth chapter of the Bible in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4 is a genealogy. It's a family tree of Cain's family line. As the family tree progresses, Cain's descendants become more sophisticated, but also increasingly evil. At the end of the family tree is a man named Lamech, and Lamech boasts that he would be revenged 77-fold if anyone wronged him. He was a man devoted to blood feuds without end. He was a man of vengeance. He was a man of violence. And Jesus picks up on that little subtle word. And what he's saying is that we are supposed to be like Lamech, but with one critical qualification. Lamech pledged himself to be ruthless in his vengeance, that there would be no end to his vendetta. And Jesus is saying that we are to be equally ruthless with our grace. There's to be no end to it. Our forgiveness is to be without exception. Our forgiveness is to be without condition. It's to have no bounds. It's to have no limits. This is the extent of forgiveness that Jesus teaches us. But how do you get there? How do you forgive someone of the unforgivable, of all the things that can happen inside our world Because it's important to affirm that unspeakable things don't just happen in Rwanda. They've happened to you, to people sitting in this sanctuary. There is abuse and there is betrayal. There is injustice and there is inequity. There's denial and there's obfuscation and there's all the frustration on the backside of being sinned against. 
Yes, this is not an abstract, theoretical, intellectual problem. This is a problem that confronts every one of us because we've all, to some degree and measure at least, we have been sinned against by others. And then we have Jesus' call to forgive. And so how? It's one of the most demanding, steep courses that we can ever climb. But how? This takes us to Jesus' second point, where he tells a story, a parable, to make the point. And he addresses the motivation behind our forgiveness. Jesus tells a fairly frightening story about a king who decides to settle up with his servants. And the king discovers that one servant is indebted to him 10,000 talents. 10,000 is not necessarily a large number to us, but in that world, it was the largest unit of measure. And so when Jesus says 10,000 talents, it's an outlandish, hyperbolic figure. In our equivalent, it would be millions and millions or billions and billions. Jesus' point is that this debt was unpayable, that this servant had mismanaged his affairs and could never repay the debt to his master. No way of returning the loan. So in keeping with first century practices, the king had one of two choices. He could put the man in prison, and in prison he would be tortured, and that was done to induce the family to then pay off the debt. Or the master could simply sell the servant, recoup what he could, and move on with it. So the king takes the second option. He decides to sell the man and his family into slavery to recoup what he could. But in verse 26, the servant who is indebted 10,000 talents, the unpayable sum, falls on his knees. And listen carefully to what he says. Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. The master knew that wasn't going to happen. And so Jesus tells us, In verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. The man offered to repay. It was preposterous, and the master decided to forgive the debt. And friends, this is what's always involved in forgiveness, is that someone accepts the debt on behalf of someone else. The master absorbed the cost even an enormous cost. But then Jesus takes us to a second act in the parable where the servant, freshly forgiven, goes out and finds one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, it's important to recognize that a hundred denarii is not a small amount. In that world of a subsistence economy, a hundred denarii was substantial. It was about one-third of an annual wage. And so the man was indebted. He seizes him, he begins to choke him, and demands that he pay him. The servant fell on his knees, and he cries out, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He uses nearly the same words. The servant who had been forgiven refuses and throws him into prison. And he puts him in the prison so that he would be tortured, And his family would then be induced 
to pay to free him from the torture. It was cruel. Despite his cries, he ignored them and handed him over. And here's the thing that Jesus is trying to get at. A hundred denarii was substantial. It was a real debt. It's not trivial at all. That said, it's infinitesimal in comparison to 10,000 talents. There were 6,000 denarii in one talent. And so calculating that, 60 million denarii was owed by the first servant, and that debt was forgiven. And yet he goes and chokes out the man who is indebted to him 100. It's a small, small fraction. And yet he was willing to hold it against the man, to throw him into prison until it could be paid. He delighted that his loan had been waived, and yet he forecloses on another. The point of Jesus' parable is the hypocrisy of this man, that he would be forgiven in in an inestimable amount, and then he would refuse to give that same grace to another. And it's here that we discover the motivation that lies behind our forgiveness. It's always that we've been forgiven an incalculable debt, a debt that we could never repay, and that this is what God has done for us in Jesus and sending him to the cross and going down into death on our behalf and rising from the dead, that the debt has been satisfied, it's been settled. And that the sin that anyone ever commits against us is disproportionate by far from the sin that we've committed against God. And so, in forgiving someone else, it's not so much an act of generosity on our part, but rather it's an act of gratitude in which we respond to the grace of God that has initiated with us, that is prior, that has come to us, and forgiving us far something more substantial. This is the logic of the gospel, that forgiven people forgive others. To fail to do so demonstrates that we have a light hold on the forgiveness that we've been given in Jesus. But there is an important and very challenging and sensitive issue that always arises, a pastoral question, one that I myself have frequently struggled with and one that I've had voiced by many people in different congregations that I've served. What does it look like to forgive an offender who never apologizes. Chuck, what about when you've been sinned against and in very deep ways and the person just goes on with their life acting like nothing ever happened? There were no consequences. They just move on from strength to strength. In these very difficult, almost insurmountable cases, there's one very critical thing to note. And that is that forgiveness for humans does not always equate into full reconciliation. That we can forgive and yet not be reconciled to someone. And in these difficult moments where someone doesn't recognize the wrong, 
that they're not going to, that they're going to ignore it, and yet you're left with the debt. What are you going to do? It'd be so satisfying if the offender said, have mercy on me, have patience with me, and yet those words never come. In 1977, Idi Amin ruled Uganda in an iron fist. Murder and disappearances were a common part of society. The East African revival had swept through Uganda. The Anglican church was the major player in the country. The archbishop was a man named Janani Luam. And Luam spoke out against Idi Amin told him that his violence and his evil was wrong and asked that it would stop. February 16th, 1977, Luam and several others were arrested. They were taken into the local stadium and they were tried for treason. Later that evening, he was taken to an army barracks where he was executed with several others. The others were shot through the chest, Luam through the mouth because his tongue had so offended Amin. Luam's longtime friend was another bishop named Bishop Festo. A year later, he published a book. It was entitled, very simply, I Love Edie Amin. The man who had killed his brother, his friend, his colleague, his mentor in many ways, I Love Edie Amin. Listen to the conclusion. This is so profoundly challenging. On the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. As evil as Idi Amin is, how can I do less toward him? The gospel leavened in Festo's heart, and this was the conclusion. How could I do less? And also look what God has done for me. And this is what Festo knew. This is what Immaculate knew. That unless there was forgiveness offered, that the offenses were so deep against them, that those offenses would control them and shape them and destroy them. They would either collapse in despair and cynicism and frustration, or they would be overrun by outrage. There were only two directions to go in terms of human terms. But yet there was another path. And in order for the offense not to take over, for the offense not to control, that there must be the choice to forgive, to overcome evil with good, as Paul says in Romans 12. And this act of grace, when we overcome evil with good, what it does is it starves evil of the very oxygen that it needs to live. Doesn't mean that we overlook consequences. Doesn't mean that we ignore events. But it does mean that we release our anger and our resentment that we release our deep desire for retribution, and we entrust that offender to God. We put him in God's hands. And friends, on our side of the equation, in the broken and messy world that we inhabit, 
where we sin and where we've been sinned against. This is Jesus' calling on our lives, that we love our enemies, that we seek to bless and not curse, that we overcome evil with good. When we've been trespassed against, this is the high calling of the gospel. And so Jesus' prayer is to shape us into this way of forgiveness, asking for grace and extending grace to others. When the warden asked Immaculate why she had forgiven Felician of his crimes, she replied, forgiveness at this point is all I have to offer. She had come to the end of herself. And forgiveness was all she had to offer. And friends, let's make that our goal. That forgiveness is all that we have to offer. To those who have offended. To those who have trespassed. To those who are in our debt. And that in doing so, we manifest the love and the grace of God to a very weary and to a very tired world. This is the Christian witness in the middle of all tension, in the middle of all conflict, that because we've been graced by God, because we've been forgiven by him, that we show forgiveness, that we demonstrate grace. Let's ask him for his help. Let's pray. Father, we confess that Jesus' words are breathtaking. 77 times an infinite amount that our forgiveness is to be extended to those who offend. And he sets his own model upon the cross in forgiving those who even murdered him unjustly. Help us, God. We know that we are so often like the servant, forgiven and then choking out another because of their wrongs against us. Overwhelm us with the knowledge of our debt and overwhelm us with the knowledge of its forgiveness and make us merciful and gracious people. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.